Chapter 27 Pierce's Vision In a number of radio programs and writings, Pierce has outlined his perspective on the nature and history of those he considers his people, white Europeans, and offered his vision of their future in this country. I drew on eight of these sources to compile the following statement. The words below are Pierce's. I have added headings to put them into context. Rediscovering Our Roots A society is a very complex thing. It is like a living organism. It responds to selective environmental forces, and it evolves. In past ages, it was the struggle of our people to survive, the competition of our people against other peoples, other races, which determined the nature of our society. Societies which functioned well survived. Societies which didn't function well perished. Historically, if some crazy liberal came along and was able to change all the rules and structures in a society to suit some egalitarian fantasy of his, the society would sink like a rock and its people would perish. And that is what is happening to our society today, although it may not be apparent to us because of the timescale. After the experimenters finish their deadly work, it may take a society 200 years to disintegrate completely and sink out of sight. That's not long from a historical viewpoint, but it's long enough so that most of the people involved never realize what's happening. The society we had in Europe up until the end of the 18th century, or one may say the various societies there, which really were very much alike when compared with any non-European society, had evolved over a period of many, many generations of our people, and it had fine-tuned itself to our special nature. It had developed its institutions and its ways of doing things which suited us as a people and allowed us to form viable, efficient communities. When we colonized North America and other parts of the world, we took the essential elements of our society with us. And what were those essential elements? The first essential element was order. Everyone had a place in our society, whether he was the village blacksmith or the king and he knew what that place was. He knew how he fitted in, what his responsibilities were, to whom he owed loyalty and respect, and to whom he in turn was obliged to provide guidance. It was a hierarchical society. There was no pretense that everyone was just as capable or just as creative or just as brave or just as suited for leadership as anyone else. People had social rank and social status, and social authority commensurate with their social responsibilities and with their contributions to society. The master craftsman had a higher social rank than a journeyman, who in turn had a higher rank than an apprentice. The landowner with a thousand acres who employed a hundred workers on his land had a higher social rank than the man who only owned an acre and worked his land himself, but he also had more social responsibilities. He had a responsibility for the welfare and discipline of his workers, for example and the master craftsman had a responsibility to provide proper guidance for his apprentices and to uphold the standards of his craft. The fact that our society was orderly and people knew their place didn't mean that it was inflexible. The apprentice, through diligence and talent, could become a journeyman, and a journeyman might eventually become a master. And the man with only one acre might buy more land and hire workers if he used the land he already had in a productive way and accumulated savings. 
But the shirker or the wastrel or the incompetent could never expect that the government would tax his more successful neighbors in order to reward him for his failure and bring him up to their level. The second essential feature that our society had was homogeneity. Everyone had the same roots, the same history, the same genes, the same sensibilities. Or at least there was enough genetic similarity. There was a close enough family relationship among the people so that people understood each other. A village, a province, a nation was like a large extended family. People felt a sense of kinship, a sense of belonging, a sense of loyalty and responsibility that extended to the whole society. This feeling of belonging, this sense of a common history and a common destiny, this sense of identity was the glue that held the society together and gave it its strength. And it gave men and women their individual strength too. Just knowing who they were, where they had been, and where they were going made an enormous difference in their sense of personal security, in their ability to plan ahead and be reasonably confident of what the future held for them. This homogeneity and the consequent sense of family, of identity, was thousands of years in developing, just like the hierarchical order in our society. And we developed as individuals, we evolved, along with our society. The type of society we had became imprinted on our genes. Of course, it wasn't a perfect society. It was full of problems and imperfections. We always were developing new technologies, for example, and our society didn't always have time to adjust itself to these innovations before even more innovations came along. But it was a society in which we were strong and confident and more or less spiritually healthy. The Industrial Revolution really was a huge shock to our traditional form of society. It took people off the farms and out of the villages and packed them into factory towns like sardines in a can. This was a great strain on the old order. The new relationship between factory owner and factory workers was not as healthy a one as had existed between landowner and workers on the land, nor was the new urban lifestyle as spiritually healthy as the village lifestyle. We were learning gradually to cope with some of the changes in our society which accompanied the Industrial Revolution. Our social order gradually was beginning to adjust itself, when the liberals and the Jews launched their assault. Unrest and revolution were fomented from the latter part of the 18th century and throughout the 19th and 20th centuries. Egalitarianism, communism, democracy, equal rights, no responsibilities, welfare programs, feminism. The old order was drowned in blood. In France, the aristocrats and the landowners were butchered in response to the resentments which the liberals had stirred up among the rabble. Later, in Russia, the same process took place when the Jewish Bolsheviks finally gained the upper hand and butchered not just the aristocrats, but everyone who had worked a little harder and been a little more successful than the rabble. The kulaks, small farmers and landowners, were murdered en masse by the millions in order to equalize Russian society and destroy the last traces of the old hierarchical order. Amid the social chaos of the 20th century, the enemies of our people were able to introduce their idea of racial equality alongside their idea of social equality. We were told that the descendants of our slaves are just as good as we are, maybe better, and so they should become our social equals. We should bring them into our schools and neighborhoods, 
and we should intermarry with them, and we should buy food stamps for them with our taxes, and we should give them preference in hiring and promotions. And we should open our borders to all of the non-white wretched refuse of the third world's teeming shores. They also are our equals, we are told. The more diversity, the better. Diversity is our strength. Blah, blah, blah. We were too disoriented and confused by the destruction of our social order to resist this poisonous propaganda. And so here we are at the beginning of the 21st century. There are some people who will try to convince you things have never been better. We certainly have more equality and less order, more diversity and less homogeneity than ever before. And that obviously suits some people, in addition to the liberals and the Jews who are pushing for these changes. But are these changes better for us? The suicide statistics, the drug statistics, the crime statistics, and the mental illness statistics give us a part of the answer. These statistics should help us keep our grip on reality when the Jewish media try to persuade us that we need more of the same poison they have been dishing out for so long. More equality, more chaos, more diversity. We should be able to look into our own souls for the rest of the answer. We should know that we need again to have an ordered, structured society in which we all have a place and will be appreciated according to how effectively we fill that place. We should know that we need again to have a homogeneous society in which we can feel a sense of belonging. We should know that we need a sense of permanence and stability, not chaos and uncertainty. We should know that we need a society in which everyone strives for quality, not for an imaginary equality. We should know that in order to be spiritually healthy again, we need a society in which we can feel a sense of rootedness and responsibility rather than the aimless, wandering, rootless, cosmopolitan egoism which characterizes American society today. The Limitations of Democracy There are two principal reasons that democracy has turned against our people. First, the results a people obtain from a democracy depend on the quality of the electorate. And second, the influence of the mass media on the democratic process has been overwhelming. The first reason simply tells us that we should expect a democracy to work better when we have a responsible, intelligent, moral, and racially conscious electorate than when we have an electorate of overweight couch potatoes, basketball fans, trendy airheads, and hymn singers. And certainly, the average quality of white voters has declined sharply from the time of the Founding Fathers to the present. Today, we have a less manly and much softer, more impressionable, vulgar, and irresponsible electorate than we had in the 19th century. And I'm talking only about white voters. The influence of the mass media on this more feminine and impressionable electorate an influence which has become overwhelming in this century with the development first of radio and then of motion pictures and television, has made a mockery of the whole concept of democracy as a system of government by the mass of the people who make their choices on the basis of their own innate values and attitudes. The masters of the mass media can and do manipulate the emotions and the opinions of the public on every issue of importance to themselves. They can and do set the political fashions of the day. They can and do form the image in the mind of the public of every candidate for public office. 
Democracy in America today is no longer ruled by the mass of people. That is only the outward appearance of our system today. What we really have is an oligarchy, and the oligarchs are the people who own and control our mass media. Through the manipulation of public opinion and the images of candidates, the mass media constrain the flow of public policy within boundaries chosen by their masters. The really disastrous thing about this oligarchy is that the oligarchs are, for the most part, not even of our people, but rather are of a people wholly alien to us. The consequences of rule by this alien oligarchy, which hides behind the pretense of democracy, is that we have amoral and irresponsible political leaders whose only concern is pleasing the oligarchs and thereby advancing their own careers. They are politicians, really more actors, more showmen than statesmen, who are addicted to the feeling of power, to the idea of controlling people and nations, but who have no real concern for the welfare or the destiny of the people they pretend to lead. With the democratic politicians of this sort, obedient to the will of the hidden oligarchs of the media, white people have been led into two horribly destructive and fratricidal world wars in this century, which killed millions of the best people in our race, wars which led to the rise of communism and to its flourishing for more than 70 years, wars which weakened our race to the point that the oligarchs are now in the final stages of consolidating their domination of us in what they gloatingly refer to as their new world order. If the modern world has become such that real democracy no longer is feasible, if we must be ruled by oligarchs, then let us do whatever we must do to ensure, first, that those oligarchs are of our own people, and not of an alien race, and second, that they are moral, responsible, and racially conscious men, whose primary concern is the destiny of our race. We can have that. The Nature of Patriotism what has changed in America during the past 50 years to erode the sense of patriotism so much? If you think about it for a minute, you'll know the answer. The average white person can no longer look on America as his family. He no longer feels a part of it. It's just the place in which he happened to have been born and happens to be living. He no longer feels a sense of kinship with all other Americans. The reason he doesn't is primarily the result of the enormous increase in what liberals in the media fondly call diversity. That is, the great increase in the number of people with whom we feel nothing in common. People with different roots. People who look different, think differently, behave differently, and have different values. People whom we cannot even imagine being part of our family. When we look at America and see a great many people like that, when we see all of this diversity, then we no longer feel ourselves a part of America. We no longer feel a sense of loyalty to America. The Jews in the media still hate and fear patriotism as much as ever. They have tried to make it a dirty word. And they have succeeded pretty well among the trendy yuppies and the urban rabble over whom they have the strongest influence. They hold up the militias as the epitome of patriotism and they try to frighten the lemmings with the specter of the angry, rural, white male with a gun and an American flag who is threatening the government which provides them their welfare checks. Of course, Jews understand the idea of loyalty based on blood, on kinship, on common roots. That's the kind of loyalty they have for each other and to Israel. 
but they don't want us to have that. They know how powerful that is. They hate the idea of us being united by such a sense of patriotism. They hate it and fear it. And that is why they've been working so hard to undermine old-fashioned American patriotism and replace it by allegiance to a faceless, raceless, rootless, cosmopolitan new world order. Under their control, of course. No matter how fashionable they make their idea of a new world order among the liberals and the politicians, it is an unnatural idea. Liberals may gush about equality and the brotherhood of man, and the human race being the only race to which they feel loyalty. But that is empty sophistry. Fools may let themselves be convinced that they have become raceless, cosmopolitan patriots, patriots of the new world order. But one will find very few of them who are willing to die or even make any major sacrifice for this new pseudo-patriotism. Real patriotism is not some artificial idea dreamed up by the Jews. It is something based in our genes, an instinct, an extension of the instinct for self-preservation to include our kin, our nation. One can undermine that patriotism by muddying and confusing the concept of nation, the image of nation, as has been done during the past half-century by promoting diversity. When the enemies of our people, with the collaboration of the treasonous politicians in Washington, when these enemies infiltrate tens of millions of immigrants into our country and stifle any effort to halt the flood, when they subsidize the breeding of a non-white underclass in our cities with our own tax money, when they force us to accept these growing non-white masses into our schools and neighborhoods and workplaces, when they saturate all the news and entertainment media with the alien faces, alien tones, and alien antics of these non-whites and gloatingly tell us that we'd better get used to the idea of becoming a minority in our own land within the next 50 years, then, of course, the patriotism which came naturally to our people in the past becomes meaningless. The process of social atomization, of deracination, of separating people from their roots and cutting the bonds to their natural communities so that they can become interchangeable units, human atoms, for building the new world order is being promoted ruthlessly by the Jews and their collaborators. And the rising incidence of treason is only one of the smaller and less important consequences of this genocidal process. I say this process is genocidal because it will certainly destroy us as a people, as a race, as well as destroying us as a nation. People with no sense of patriotism are people unable to defend themselves collectively. They are people who will be victimized by any group which still has a group feeling. We let our idea of patriotism gradually drift from a racial idea to a geographical idea, a political idea. When our ancestors in Europe were defending their people against the Huns or Moors or Turks, they understood patriotism. Even after the rise of all of Europe's national states, when patriotism began expressing itself as nationalism, it still had a racial or at least an ethnic, basis. The words themselves tell us what their original meanings were. Patriotism, of course, comes from the Roman word for father. Patriotism is love of the fatherland, love of the land inhabited by all the people descended from a common father. Nationalism also comes to us from the Romans, from the Latin word for birth. A nation is a group of people related by birth, by blood, and nationalism is love for that people, loyalty to that people. 
These feelings of patriotism or nationalism are very powerful feelings because they are natural feelings. They contributed to our survival over a very long period of evolution. But when we forget the racial meaning of patriotism and think of it only in geographical or political terms as loyalty to every person of whatever race, color, or creed who happens to be living within a specific geographical area at the moment, then patriotism is no longer a natural feeling, but instead becomes artificial and consequently much easier to subvert. And that is what has happened to more and more white Americans all the time as the growth of diversity proceeds. The cure for this disease, for this erosion of patriotism, is not difficult to find. It is obvious. It is simply to understand and assimilate our patriotism as it originally was. The cure for what is happening to America begins by returning to the natural race-based patriotism that our ancestors had. A white future. White people have always struggled. We always have resisted alien domination. We are a race of conquerors, of inventors, of builders, not slaves or couch potatoes. We always have fought for a better future instead of just relaxing and letting other people tell us what was good for us. A very troublesome trait, this determination to be masters of our own destiny, this determination to live in accord with our innate values instead of someone else's. This determination to hang on to our traditions and our lifestyle and to do things our way. This troublesome trait of ours is really a big obstacle to the planners of the new world order, who want us just to relax and not struggle, while they mix us with Haitians and Mestizos and Vietnamese to produce a blend without racist traditions or racist habits or racist ambitions to shape our own destiny. So why do we not want to be blended? Why do we insist on remaining a race of conquerors, inventors, and builders? A race of explorers, a race of poets, philosophers, and dreamers, a proud race, an independent race, a race with our own traditions, instead of the agreeable, placid race of coffee-colored consumers and couch potatoes those nice Jews in the media and those nice politicians in Washington want us to be. I guess the best answer to that question is that that's just the way we are. That's our God-given nature, and we want to keep it. In fact, we are determined to keep it. And by God, we'll send all those who try to take it away from us straight to hell. The white future I dream about, the white America that I want for my people, is an America of proud, independent men, manly men, and feminine women. It is an America based on our history and our traditions and our ways. History and ways and traditions we brought here from Europe. It will be an America governed by our values and our standards. Our standards of behavior. Our standards of performance. Our standards of quality. Our standards of beauty. It will be an America where little white boys and little white girls go to schools and learn how to be proud and productive white men and women. It will be an America where there are no advertisers trying to push racial mixing by putting a few black and mestizo and Asian faces into every group illustration. Advertisers who like to pair off white girls with black boys in their ads. 
It will be an America without drugs and without rap music and without the dark faces and alien sounds which pervade our cities today. Can you imagine such an America? We used to have a white America back before the Second World War. Ask your parents or grandparents about it. Go to the library and look at some of the old magazines published back in the 1920s and 1930s. Look at the advertisements in these old magazines and compare them with the advertisements produced today. Yes, even New York City was once white. Los Angeles was white, except for its Chinatown. Look at the 19th century paintings. Look at the photographs taken before the Second World War of scenes on university campuses, of street scenes in American cities, of sports events, of outdoor recreation. The people are all white. That is hard to imagine today, isn't it? But 75 years ago, one could walk through downtown Los Angeles or New York and hardly ever see a non-white face. Of course, in a white America, we still will have problems to overcome. That's what life is all about, overcoming problems. We still will have a certain amount of crime, even without non-whites, who commit the majority of crimes of violence and vice in America today. Although our streets and homes will be much, much safer than they are today, we still will have criminals. But we will know how to deal with our criminals. In this regard, let me recite for you a little poem written by one of the truly great English poets, Rudyard Kipling. It is a poem you won't find in our schools today. It was written in a saner, prouder, whiter, less Jewish time, a much less hypocritical time. It is titled, The Stranger. Kipling wrote, quote, The stranger within my gate, he may be true or kind, but he does not talk my talk. I cannot feel his mind. I see the face and the eyes and the mouth, but not the soul behind. The men of my own stock, they may do ill or well, but they tell the lies I am wanted to. They are used to the lies I tell. And we do not need interpreters when we go to buy and sell. The stranger within my gates, he may be evil or good, but I cannot tell what powers control, what reasons sway his mood, nor when the gods of his far-off land shall repossess his blood. The men of my own stock, bitter bad they may be, but at least they hear the things I hear, and see the things I see. And whatever I think of them and their likes, they think the likes of me. This was my father's belief, and this is also mine. Let the corn be all one sheaf, and the grapes be all one vine, ere our children's teeth are set on edge by bitter bread and wine. End quote. That was Rudyard Kipling's view of things a century ago, and it also was the view of most of our people in a time before they had been deceived and led astray by the alien masters of the mass media. A feeling of community, a feeling of family, a feeling of common blood and common soul, and common history and common destiny. That is what it takes to make a viable nation. And that is what we must have again if America is to survive. A white future for America is much more than a material thing. It is much more than safe streets and clean cities and a lower crime rate. It is much more than a huge reduction in taxes for the support of welfare queens. It is much more than a more efficient and productive workforce 
and an end to the injustice of affirmative action. It is more than all these things. It is a spiritual thing. This feeling that one's neighbors are one's kin. This looking on white faces and feeling a genuine sense of brotherhood that rises from the heart. Not the strained sense that one ought to feel brotherly when one looks on alien faces. This feeling of sharing in their joy when one looks on a young white couple in love. Not the sense of obligation to give a politically correct smile when one passes a racially mixed couple and tries unsuccessfully to suppress the rage in one's heart. There are young people growing up today who have never known what it means to live in a white country, who have never known the feeling of racial community which one can feel in a white environment and which Americans used to take for granted. They have been robbed of this knowledge by the people who, for their own selfish purposes, have taken over our mass media and swamped us with their poisonous propaganda of rootlessness and cosmopolitanism and the wonders of the melting pot. And by the politicians who have implemented their destructive racial policies, policies which have darkened America so noticeably during the past 50 years. My dream of a white America is not nostalgia. I know that we can never return to the past. But I also know that if we are ever to move forward again, we have to get rid of this racial mess which has engulfed America. I know that no multiracial society can be a healthy or stable society. Some people who agree with me that the present racial situation is untenable and can only become worse under the government's present policies nevertheless cannot conceive of rectifying the situation. They believe that once a country has been integrated racially, it cannot be unintegrated. But it can be, although the process of unintegration is likely to be an extraordinarily painful and bloody process. It is likely to require a civil war much worse than the one we went through in the last century. Much worse. It certainly will disrupt the lives of everyone involved. The soft couch potatoes and the trendy consumers would much prefer to avoid the disruption so that they can continue their TV viewing and their consuming. Even people made of somewhat sterner stuff are horrified by the prospect of straightening out our racial situation. But we must do it. We must plan for it. We must not refuse to think about it just because it will be difficult and so unpleasant. We are in our present mess because we failed to act when action would have been far less painful. In these uncertain times in which we live, there is one thing of which we can be certain, and that is... The Jews and their collaborators in the government, the media, the schools, and the churches will cling to the death to their plan for the destruction of our people through miscegenation. They have a tiger by the tail, and they know that they must not let go. And so conditions in America will continue to grow worse and worse, as the enemies of our people continue desperately to push us to the point of no return. Our schools and our cities will become more jungle-like. Our popular culture will become more alien, more debased more Negroid and more Mexican and more Asian. The behavior of our politicians and our sports and entertainment stars will become more animalistic. Our government will become even more corrupt. And white Americans will run out of suburbs to which they can flee. And when they no longer can evade the situation, when they no longer can ignore it, when they no longer can parrot the politically correct lies about race without any danger of being contradicted by reality, then more and more white Americans finally must make decisions about the future they don't want to think about now. And we know that many of them will just wring their hands and cry in womanish despair, 
Oh, why can't the races get along with each other? Why can't there be peace and cooperation between the races so that I can continue to consume in comfort and safety and political correctness? Oh, why must I deal with this difficult and unpleasant problem of race? And we know that more of the weakest and most degraded of our people, the most corrupt and selfish of our people, will join our enemies in the hope of temporarily improving their own personal situations. But we also know that many others, when there no longer is a safe suburb to which they can flee, finally will be ready to stand and fight. And my message to these last is this. Don't wait until the last minute to make your decision. Much better to make it sooner than later. Don't fall for the defeatist lie that we cannot unintegrate America because it will be too difficult and too violent and too painful. Don't refuse to think about the grim and bloody remedy of a civil war because the alternative is far grimmer and far bloodier. Civil war is thinkable. Civil war is planable when the alternative is extinction. Be a man and face reality and steel yourself to do whatever must be done to undo the damage that our enemies have done to us so that our people will have a future. Accepting Responsibility This wonderful gift of life that we have, what does it mean? What is its real value? Is it simply a collection of sensations, of feelings? I'm sure that for many people, that is what life is. The more pleasurable their collection of sensations, the more pleasant their feelings, the more enjoyable the things they see, the better their life is. And that's understandable. That's what life always has been for animals. And we are animals. We are creatures of instinct. And our instincts tell us to survive, to find food, to seek shelter, to reproduce, to avoid danger. In a prosperous, civilized society, the drive to satisfy these basic needs expresses itself as a quest for wealth, for enjoyment, for comfort. A thousand years ago, our ancestors also sought wealth, enjoyment, and comfort. But they didn't believe that these things were quite so important as most people today think they are. In that age before television, people were perhaps a little closer to the earth, and they were a little more aware of just how temporary an individual's life is. And they reached out for things with a little more permanence. Things beyond comfort and pleasure. Things which to them seemed to have more real meaning. I remember a poem which expressed this feeling among our ancestors in Scandinavia, and more generally in the Germanic parts of Europe, back during the Viking Age. Those lines are, quote, Cattle die and kinsmen die. And so one dies oneself. One thing I know that never dies, the fame of a dead man's deeds. End quote. For our ancestors a thousand years ago, of course, cattle were wealth and kinsmen were power. And though they sought these things just as we do today, they understood that they were transitory. The value of these things was not permanent. The only thing that is permanent is the mark that one makes on the world with one's deeds. Everyone wants to live well, of course, but it is better to live effectively, to live so that one is remembered for what one has accomplished. And to put a little finer edge on the concept, it is not just fame in itself which is important. What counts also is the type of fame, the type of renown. 
The goal was to be remembered not just for being able to throw a spear further than others, or to swing a battle axe harder, or to use a sword more skillfully. It was to be remembered for having lived a meaningful life, a significant life. For some, that meant a life of accomplishment, of changing the world. For others, it meant a life lived as closely as possible in accord with the ideals of personal honor and of service to one's people, so that one's life could be held up as a model and remembered as such. In any case, the life that had lasting value was a life of participation, never a life of sitting on one's hands and playing it safe. Perhaps too much television and too much comfort have caused us to lose sight of this very important thing which our ancestors understood. I think that they saw their individual lives more clearly in the larger context of the ongoing life of the race than we do. They were on more familiar terms with birth and with death than we are, and were not as likely as we are to slip into the folly of believing that they would live forever. And so, being constantly aware of the reality and inevitability of death, they were more concerned than we are to use their lives effectively and to give lasting meaning to them. For those of us today who do want to participate in life, who want to live significant lives, there is no more significant activity in which to participate than working to assure a healthy future for our people, for our European race. And there is almost no limit to the ways in which you can participate in this activity. Whether you're a housewife or a computer scientist or a machinist or a secretary or a bulldozer operator or a law enforcement officer or a teacher or a writer or an artist, you can participate. The only reason that a rabble of feminists and homosexuals and Jews and blacks and mestizos and liberals are running America into the ground today is that decent people are sitting on their hands. We must be willing to accept personal responsibility. And so my message today to every decent person who is listening to this, don't be a shirker. Don't try to be a smart guy by continuing to cheer from the sidelines, but refusing to join the team and get out on the field. Stand up and become a participant in life. Make of your life a model that people will remember and talk about long after you are gone. The importance of courage. There are plenty of people who agree with us about the type of society we want, the type of future we want for our people. There are many people who are disgusted with the rotten politicians and the rotten political system we have in Washington, people who are angry about what non-white minorities have done to our schools and our cities, people who are sick and tired of seeing television and the other mass media promote everything which is sick, perverse, and destructive. Many people don't feel guilty when the media tell them to feel guilty, there are plenty of people who want a clean, decent, white society for their children to grow up in. But these people are afraid to say or do anything. Many are terrified even to have other people know what they are thinking. I understand the difference between prudence or reasonable caution on the one hand and cowardice or unreasoning fear on the other hand. Prudence is no vice, but cowardice is. The times we are living in tend to make cowards of us all. We are pressed to make moral compromises every day, and it becomes a habit. We adjust our behavior in order to get by without a lot of trouble. We do not act heroically because heroism is out of fashion. We try to do what is prudent rather than what is heroic. I'm not asking for courage from people who have none in them, 
but there are still a few individuals who are capable of being honest, even in our universities, even in our government. A few who have the courage to be honest if they are given a little encouragement, if someone else will set an example for them. We should never think, well, I am only one person. What I do or don't do isn't important. I can't make a difference by myself. That kind of thinking is wrong. We can make a difference. Courage is contagious. It spreads from person to person. And it is powerful. One courageous truth teller can back down a thousand cowards and liars and hypocrites. There has never been a time in the long history of our race when we were more in need of a few honest men and women, a few people of courage and integrity. There has never been another time when a few good men and women had the opportunity to make such a big difference as they can make right now. You've been listening to our continuing audiobook series based on the biography of white nationalist William Pierce. Be with us next time when we'll present another chapter of The Fame of a Dead Man's Deeds by Robert S. Griffin.